0: Well, it's uh, admittedly a little tough to follow uh, that video. I mean, you follow somebody getting pies put in their face and that kind of thing, but such is the nature of Vacation Bible School. What a wonderful week of ministry it looks like you all had. And uh, VBS is like that. It's a great chance for children, of course, to to hear the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that they can understand. But it's also a really great opportunity for the church body to serve together. And uh, so thank you for all the hard work that you guys did for the sake of the children here and the children in the, in the community. Uh, my name is Michael Kelly, and, and I am very glad to be able to be with you this morning and I'm, I'm very glad to be able to pick up where the sermon series that Pastor Nathan has been in uh, has left off, so we'll continue through the book of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 37 this morning. If you want to begin turning there, we'll be in Isaiah chapter 37 and we'll start in verse eight. Now Isaiah 37, by way of introduction, it brings us to the brink of a true crisis situation in the land. Now admittedly, the crisis that the people are facing here is the nature of crisis that most of us can't really identify with fully. That is to say, all of us have moments that feel desperate, moments that feel like a crisis, moments that feel like we don't have any other option available to us. But by and large, we have created a culture and society for ourselves where there is most always a contingency plan or another option. Just one example, Uh, let's say for the sake of argument that your favorite cereal on the planet is Cinnamon Toast Crunch which it probably should be, because it's the greatest cereal on the planet. So you notice to your chagrin one weekend that you have run dangerously low on Cinnamon Toast Crunch. So the only option for you is to get up and go to the supermarket. You're gonna buy two or three boxes of Cinnamon Toast Crunch, but you go to the aisle where they usually have the Cinnamon Toast Crunch, and every single box has been taken. So you might feel in your heart for a moment that that sense of crisis and desperation because the Cinnamon Toast Crunch is not there, but if you look to the side of where it's supposed to be, you probably will find something called Cinnamon Swirls. And it's in a box that looks kind of like Cinnamon Toast Crunch, and the cereal is shaped a bit like Cinnamon Toast Crunch, and it's usually a little bit less expensive than Cinnamon Toast Crunch. And you know that, okay, if I take this, it's probably not going to taste quite as good as Cinnamon Toast Crunch. There's probably going to be some kind of weird aftertaste that comes with Cinnamon Swirls that you don't get with Cinnamon Toast Crunch. But still, it is a viable second option for you. And even if you decide that you're not going to choose the Cinnamon Swirls, there are literally hundreds of other cereal options for you on the shelf. The point is simple, even if your first option is not there, there are a multitude of other options that you can choose to fill your need in that moment. And you can extrapolate that simple example across all other areas of life. The vast majority of time when we find ourselves in a moment of need or a moment that feels like crisis or a moment that feels like desperation, there is almost always something else we can do, some other lever we can pull, some other option available to us, but not here, not in Isaiah chapter 37. Not at this moment in which Hezekiah and the people within Jerusalem find themselves. If you'll remember from the previous weeks of walking through uh, the book of Isaiah, you'll probably remember that the threat that the people are facing is from the nation of Assyria. And it is a real extreme threat. The Assyrian army has come around (coughs) Jerusalem And they have sent out a royal messenger to deliver threatening messages to the king and the people inside the city. And those threats are very, very logical in nature. Essentially, what the threats say is you can either surrender to us or you can be destroyed. And there's every reason for the Israelites to take these threats very, very seriously. Because after all, the Assyrians have a larger army, so they're much more numerous than the people of Judah are at this time. Not only that, they're more technologically advanced. History would tell us that the Assyrians were the first people to use iron in their weapons, so they had a military might that was unmatched in the world at this time. And then you add on top of that that the reputation of the Assyrians were that they were extremely ruthless in battle. So this is a very, very real threat at the gates of the city. And in the face of that real threat, Hezekiah, the king, sends word to Isaiah, the prophet of the Lord, because he desperately needs a word from the Lord about what they should do. And in the end, Hezekiah does not surrender. Isaiah delivers a message that he has spoken to the Lord on behalf of the people, and that the Lord will come through on behalf of his people. And so we pick up what happens next in verse 8. The Bible tells us, when the royal spokesman heard that the king of Assyria had pulled out of Lachish, he left and found him fighting against Libna. The king had heard King Tirkana of Cush. He had set out to fight against you. So when he heard this, he sent messengers to Hezekiah saying, say this to King Hezekiah of Judah. Don't let your God on whom you rely deceive you by promising that jerusalem won't be handed over to the king of assyria look you have heard what the kings of assyria have done to all the countries they completely destroyed them will you be rescued did the gods of the nations that my predecessors destroyed rescue them Gozan, haran Rezeph, and the edenites in telisar where is the king of hamath the king of arpad the king of the city of serphabiam Hina or Eva. So there's a moment here where the people inside of the city of Jerusalem get to breathe because. The Assyrian forces withdraw. So you can imagine that moment that the people have seen these forces arrayed against them and all of a sudden they see that the army starts to go away. The Assyrians did indeed withdraw to go fight another front, but the royal messenger, even as they were withdrawing, felt the need to send Hezekiah one more message to make sure that he doesn't misunderstand what is happening here. The message is insulting in nature. In essence, what the royal ambassador says to the king and to the people that are behind the walls in Jerusalem is, make no mistake, even though we might be temporarily withdrawing, we are coming back and we're coming back to destroy you. But the real insult of the message was not leveled at the city of Jerusalem or to the king of the people. The real insult to the message was leveled at their God. That's what the message said. In essence, it said, don't be fooled by this supposed God that you worship. Because just like we have attacked scores of nations in the past, and by the way, all of them had their deity too that they were trusting in, and they all fell one by one, we are coming back. And your people and your land and the God that you claim protects you are also going to fall before us. So even though there's a temporary reprieve from the threat at the gates, the threat is not gone, it's only delayed. Now up to this point, Hezekiah had, in his past, had other options before him. you right, remember there was a moment in the book of Isaiah where Hezekiah tried to buy off The king of Assyria with gold he had stripped from the temple. You might even remember that Hezekiah's own father had not trusted in the Lord and instead made alliances with other nations to try and shore up their defenses. But here Hezekiah is in a true moment of desperation where he doesn't have any other options left at his disposal. There is no other cereal in the supermarket for him. The only thing that he can do The only thing, the only option left is for him, himself, the king, to bow low before the God of heaven and to ask God alone for deliverance, to pray. Now, that's one of the good things about a desperate situation, isn't it? So in a desperate situation, in the midst of all the other priorities, amidst all the other needs, amidst all the other competing aspects of life, A moment of true crisis puts everything in dramatic perspective and suddenly you don't have the option anymore to worry about much of anything else. All you have left is the main thing. Suddenly you're able to see with stark clarity what the main thing is. So that leads us to the question here, what was the main thing for Hezekiah? And this is where the story gets just a little bit surprising because we see in the prayer that Hezekiah prays that the main thing for him is not quite what we expect it to be. So let's pick up the text here again in verse 14. Hezekiah took the letter from the messenger's hands, read it, and then went up to the Lord's temple and spread it out before the Lord. And then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Lord of armies, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you are God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you made the heavens and the earth. Listen closely, Lord, and hear. Open up your eyes, Lord, and see. Hear all the words that Sennacherib has sent to mock the living God. Lord, it is true that the kings of Assyria have devastated all these countries and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but made from wood and stone by human hands. So they have destroyed them. Now, Lord our God, save us from his power so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are God, you alone. Then Isaiah, son of Amoz, sent a message to Hezekiah. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, Because you prayed to me about the king Sennacherib of Assyria, this is the word the Lord has spoken against him. Virgin daughter Zion despises you and scorns you. Daughter Jerusalem shakes her head behind your back. Who is it you have mocked and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? Against the Holy One of Israel. You have mocked the Lord through your servants. You have said... With my many chariots, I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon. I cut down its tallest cedars, its choice cypress trees. I came to its distant heights, its densest forest. I dug wells and drank water in foreign lands. I dried up all the streams of Egypt with the soles of my feet. But have you not heard? The Lord says... I designed it long ago. I planned it in days gone by. I have now brought it to pass. And you have crushed fortified cities into piles of rubble. Their inhabitants have become powerless, dismayed, and ashamed. They are plants of the field, tender grass, grass on the rooftops, blasted by the east wind. But I know you're sitting down, you're going out, and you're coming in, and you're raging against me. Because you're raging against me, and your arrogance have reached my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will make you go back the way you came. And this will be a sign for you. This year you will eat what grows on its own and in the second year what grows from that. But in the third year sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. The surviving remnant of the house of judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward for a remnant will go out from jerusalem and survivors from mount zion the zeal of the lord of armies will accomplish this therefore this is what the lord says about the king of assyria he will not enter this city shoot an arrow here come before it with a shield Or build up a siege ramp against it. He will go back the way he came. He will not enter this city. This is the Lord's declaration. I will defend this city and rescue it for my sake and for the sake of my servant, David. It's a a long text that we just ran, but I want to direct you back specifically to Hezekiah's prayer and the question that we brought into this portion of the text, which was, what really was the clarified main thing for Hezekiah. And I said at the outset that the answer to that question might be a little bit surprising to us because again, when you think about the moment that the people were in, the moment of desperation and crisis, what you would expect the text of Hezekiah's prayer to be would be something like this. We need help save us save us save us rescue us deliver us how many different synonyms can I put in that sentence to let you know we need help please that's what you expect it to be because that's really what our prayers sound like oftentimes when we come to our own moment of perceived crisis help me save me rescue me change things that's what we expect And there's no doubt that Hezekiah is praying for the deliverance and the rescue of himself and his people. But the overriding theme of Hezekiah's prayer is less about the people and is more about the glory and the honor of the Lord who has been mocked by the Assyrian army. Here we have a prayer for God to rise up and defend his own honor. It's an appeal for God to act not only for the benefit of his people, but for the glory of his own name. And the end result of that action in Hezekiah's prayer is not just the deliverance of the people, it's that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that the Lord is God. This is the main thing. So let me say it in one sentence for the sake of clarity. The main concern of the people of God ought to be the glory of God. The main concern for the people of God ought to be the glory of God. Now, perhaps, perhaps. When you hear a statement like that, there's just this this little tick in your mind, or maybe this little rustle in your heart, where you think to yourself, that sounds right. But I struggle with myself, my main thing being the glory of God, especially in the midst of a crisis situation. So if you feel that little tick in your mind, or you feel that little rustle in your heart, if you would, let me just give voice to a couple of questions that you might ask in a moment of honesty when you're confronted with this truth that the main concern of the people of God should be the glory of God. Here's the first question that might come into your mind. Why? Why should my main concern, why should our main concern be the glory of God? Because after all, we have all different kinds of priorities in this room. We have family priorities, we have work priorities, we have church priorities, we have economic priorities. We have interpersonal priorities. We've got all kinds of things that are vying for our attention. Why, in the midst of all of those competing priorities, why ought my main concern as a person of God, as a child of God, why should it be the glory of God when all of these things around me actually feel really, really important? And the simplest first answer to that question is because it's right. It's right truthful. When our main concern is the glory of God, it is one way that we are acknowledging the right order of the universe. Now, to really get your mind around that, you have to begin to understand that because we are all sinful, the sinful state in which we find ourselves affects much more than just our actions. It actually affects everything about us. It affects the way that we feel, it affects the way that we think, and it affects the way that we assign value and judgments to the things around us. Our whole value system is corrupted by sin. As a matter of fact, this is what Paul says is the root of sin in Romans chapter 1. Listen to this passage. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power, divine nature, these have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. When Paul looks at sinful behavior in Romans chapter 1, he sees it as a misattribution of glory. That the root of sin is our denial of what is truly valuable in the universe. That we tend to ascribe glory and worth and honor to things that don't rightly deserve glory and worth and honor. God knows what is truly praiseworthy, and he commands us to recognize the same. And what is truly praiseworthy in the universe is himself. So the first answer to the question about why our main concern ought to be the glory of God is because when we do that, we are recognizing the true order of the universe, of what is really truly praiseworthy and worthy of glory and adoration. And that's God to do anything else would be to live a lie about what the priorities of the universe ought to be. But there's another answer to that question about why we ought to make the glory of God our main concern and that is because that when we make the glory of God our main concern, we refuse to settle for something less than the best. If you look back, to the writings of C.S. Lewis, who of course was an atheist before he converted to Christianity. One of the main objections that Lewis had to the religion of Christianity was the view of God that the Bible put forth, specifically this issue. Because when Lewis read through the Psalms before he was a Christian, he found constantly the Lord was saying to his people, because the Bible is the inspired word of God, worship the Lord. In essence, what the Lord was saying over and over again was, praise me, praise me. Praise me. And Lewis said that he could not worship a God like that because it read to him like the God of the Bible was a spoiled brat of a child who couldn't get enough attention from the people that he had made. But then eventually, of course, Lewis came to see the truth of Christianity. And then in his book, The Weight of Glory, he wrote this about the subject. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea we are far too easily pleased. And reading that quote, it reminds me of several years ago when my wife and I planned a surprise vacation for our family to Walt Disney World. Maybe you've seen online videos of this where the kids don't know that they're going to Disney World and you unveil the fact that we're going to Disney World and there's a huge party in the house. Well, we wanted to do that, so we planned this whole trip one summer to go to Disney World. Didn't tell the kids. We literally packed the car that we needed to leave for the airport and that was the moment that we chose to tell them our kids were really young our, my older son who's now 16 was six and then he had a, uh, his his sister uh, she uh, at the time was three and then we of course had another child that was a baby at that time and so here we are out in the driveway the car is packed and and we we say guys we, we've got something we're gonna tell you and we we pull out these Mickey Mouse ears and we give them to them. we say we are going to Disney World and we're going right now, well, my six-year-old son went ballistic, as you would expect, and runs around the driveway, and then my other son just knew something good was happening, and so he's also very excited. But my three-year-old daughter, who remains to this day very thoughtful, very organized, was at first excited, and then it dawned on her that the day that we told them was day three of vacation Bible school. And so she starts putting the pieces together and realizes that if we're going to Disney World today, that means that I'm going to miss day four of Vacation Bible School, and the craft that we were gonna do for day four of Vacation Bible School is the craft that I really, really wanted to do. And so in the midst of this celebration, my three-year-old daughter lays down in the driveway and starts to throw a fit. Now friends, if you've never driven to the airport with a screaming child in the back seat and leaned over and yelled at this baby girl you shut your mouth i am taking you to disney world whether you like it or not (laughs) Then maybe you haven't lived as a parent yet (laughs) you can't fault her for that because she'd never been to disney world before she didn't know what it meant and i am pro vbs But VBS is not the same thing as a trip to Disney World, I think everyone can acknowledge that. This is Lewis's base argument, he said the problem with us as human beings is not that our desires are too strong, it's that they're too weak, we don't really know the eternal joy that the Lord has for us and because we don't, we're content with the little joys that we have here on earth. But to bring it back to the subject then, the answer of why our main concern ought to be the glory of God is because in doing so, we are refusing to settle for less than the best. This is why it is a loving thing for God to command us to glorify Him, to worship Him, is because what He is doing when He issues that command is He is saying, stop settling for the things of the earth. I have something better for you. Perhaps that's one of the questions you ask about that statement, why? Why ought our main priority as the people of God be the glory of God? But the second question that you might ask in regard to that statement is a little bit more personal. That first one you can kind of treat philosophically, right? But the second one, the second one is much more personal and even more simple. The second question in light of the fact that our main priority as the people of God ought to be the glory of God is this, well what about me? And you can take that word, me, and you can substitute anything else in there depending on what your moment of crisis is. What about my job? What about my kids? What about my plans? What about my retirement? What about me? That is a very personal question. And friends, there is good news if you have that question. If you want your main priority to be the glory of God and that is that God's work for his glory is not isolated from his work for the good of his people if we keep on reading in the text verse 36 we see that this is what the Lord did then the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians when the people got up the next morning there were all the dead bodies So King Sennacherib of Assyria broke camp and left. He returned home and lived in Nineveh. And then one day, while he was worshiping in the temple of his God, his sons struck him down with the sword and escaped to the land of Ararat. The Lord acted in response to Hezekiah's prayer, and he acted for his own glory But the amazing thing is, his people received the deliverance. Now, this is not the only time that this happens in Scripture. If you think back to the time when the people were enslaved in Egypt, the Lord delivered them with a series of plagues on the Egyptians. But what you might not realize is that every one of those plagues actually corresponded to one of the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. So the Egyptians worshiped the Nile and the Lord turned it to blood. The Egyptians worshiped the sun and the Lord blotted it out. The Egyptians worshiped the God of fertility and the Lord caused the firstborn of all of them to die. The Lord was very concerned about the welfare of his people, but he was concerned about the welfare of his people to the glory of his own name. The people were delivered, but they were delivered in such a way that the name of the Lord was glorified both among his people and to all the nations. But there is one greater example even than that that tells us that the glory of God is actually for your good and that is in the person and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you turn to Philippians chapter two, you find this wonderful passage where Paul writes about what happened to Jesus in describing his person who says that Jesus, who existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited, but instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of how all of our greatest needs are met. All of our eternal needs are met. The greatest proof that God has to offer that he does love us and for our good is in the sacrifice of his own son. And yet that for our benefit was done not exclusively for our benefit, but ultimately to the glory of God the Father. The Lord is a delivering, rescuing, saving God. And he does so for his own glory. So Christian, this morning, you can pray confidently that the name of the Lord would be lifted up in your individual situation. You can pray confidently and you can know that that same God who delivers in a way that lifts up his own name that the nations may know is the God who is also committed to your good. May it be so. Let's pray to that end together today. Father, we thank you that you have not left us on our own. We thank you, Lord, that you have provided for us. You continue to provide for us in moments of real desperation and in moments of perceived desperation. Lord, would you help us not just to be people who pray formulaically for your glory, but people who really have the glory of God as our main priority. And Lord, to trust to the fact that even as we do, that you are committed to our good as a means of receiving glory for yourself. We pray that it would be so. In Jesus' name, amen.